be really successful, you have to know a certain amount of stuff all said and done or have exposure to a certain amount of things. And I think there's extreme power in front loading that in your career. So, you know, those early 20s, you know, when you got nothing else to do but hang out in your apartment and you know, hang out with your friends, obviously do all that, but like go to work, you know, go put in 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And I mentioned like in that accounting world, you know, go to extra meetings, you know, go work, go ask, go ask for extra assignments, go learn as much as you can. It's kind of like if you need 10,000 hours of, of knowledge to be really successful or good at something, you got time, you know, your first couple of jobs to go do that. Go, go load up your brain early. It's only going to benefit you down the road. And then it'll give you a better opportunity at 30, 31, 32 to be able to go and actually do that educated and, you know, with a great foundation and, and not just be out there guessing. Welcome to the Edge of Excellence podcast. This show is for current and aspiring leaders that are dedicated to showing up every day in their lives with excellence. We break down the careers of those excelling so you can understand what is out there and how to rise up in every field you choose. Let's get the show on the road, shall we? Your host has spent his life promoting global entrepreneurship, helping 20-somethings find their passion and working to help others achieve excellence. CEO of CollegeWorks, Matt Stewart. Welcome to the show. Thank you for listening. And do not forget to share with your friends, especially your friends that are interested in accounting for this episode, because we've got Chip McCaslin on the show. You can find him at LinkedIn, Chip McCaslin. He's an Ironman. He's a triathlete. He worked at KPMG and ended up an entrepreneurial CEO. He's going to talk about excellence is doing simple things spectacularly, and we're going to explore all sorts of careers in accounting, finance, M&A, niche manufacturing. Welcome to the show and welcome to the Edge of Excellence. Well, Chip, I know you're a busy guy. Thank you so much for making it on the show and welcome to the Edge of Excellence. Thanks, Matt. Great to, uh, great to hear from you today and thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for volunteering to come on. I appreciate hearing from accounting professions, manufacturing, the story to CEO from that angle, but we're going to start off the way we always start off. Chip, what is your definition of excellent? Yeah, you know, it's uh, I've listened to this podcast a few times and uh, it, it's hard not to repeat some of the great things that have been said, but um, my definition, it's a, it's, it's a little twist on one that you've heard before, but it's not about doing spectacular things, it's about doing simple things spectacularly. And it was a, a mentor of mine from probably 10 years ago who, uh, who really instilled this one with me. And, and really, the, the main takeaway is, honestly, fundamentals will get you a long way. And fundamentals will, you know, done every single time well, done every single day, done flawlessly, are plenty more than enough to, to get you ahead. You know, the, the big flashy things, whether it's, you know, kind of big splashy things in business, you know, or in life, I mean, ultimately, they, they don't really make a big difference if you can't execute on a day-to-day -day every single time. That's yeah, not about doing spectacular things, but doing simple things spectacularly. All right. I love it. And no one's ever said it. Um, and it's interesting because you're coming from the accounting and finance background. You know, accounting, accounting is not simple, but it's repetitive. And maybe doing accounting spectacularly, in my mind as a CEO, it's advising the executive team standing up to the people that want to do it their way with the kind of the way to do it, being a good advisor. What does it mean to you to do the simple things in accounting spectacularly? Yeah, well, it's, so I do, I'm in manufacturing. And so from an accounting side, you know, maybe it, it's not as, uh, it, maybe, maybe not as easy to see, but when you start talking about shipping widgets to people, doing simple things spectacularly is, making it right every single time. So perfect quality every single time, shipping it out in a reasonable lead time, shipping it to the right place with the right packaging, the right colors that people order, and really making sure that uh, that you make the thing that someone needs and you, you get it to them in a timely fashion. Think, think someone like Amazon, right? You order something and it shows up the next day every single time. It's simple. And, and over time, you know, it really becomes a, a great business and great model. But it's really that, you know, do, do what you say you're going to do and get it right every single time. I get. I mean, I guess it should be simple, but when you have quite a few employees and you have quite a few products and you have quite a few logistics vendors, it's not so simple. And if you have a culture in your business, and I know you don't have this 
in your business, CFS technology. But if you don't have the culture of doing simple things spectacularly, the wrong color goes to the wrong place at the wrong time, and you're really screwing up companies, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, when you're a piece of a supply chain like we are, you know, people are relying on us. You know, we, we sell to chemical companies who then sell essentially large packages to you know, think hotels, restaurants, hospitals. So we make the, the chemical dispensing and dilution control equipment. So we, we help mix chemical and water for spray bottles and mop buckets and into laundry and things like that. But, you know, if there's not a piece of equipment on the wall or in the in the, the janitor's closet to be able to move chemistry, then, you know, that uh, the, the hotel's not getting clean, the hospital's not getting clean, and, and customers got a big problem. Yeah, you don't put the actual cleaning fluid in, right? You're not cleaning, you're just spreading the germs around. Exactly. Yeah, we're 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 the necessary evil to make sure chemical uh, chemical gets used every day. I think I told you this when we were talking at some point in time um, that I, I know you know that I had a chemical company and it, it taught me a lot about core competency because it wasn't my core competency and I thought my core competency was sales. So if I can sell construction, I can sell chemicals, and we outsourced our chemical manufacturing. And I don't know if I told you this part. But we got a call from the FAA and we were fined $36,000 because our chemical, it turned out, the way it was mixed, combusted at 110 degrees. And it was on a FedEx plane, I believe. And while it was over Nevada, it caught on fire. And, uh, you know, we had to throw everything away, start over. So somewhere something got mixed wrong. And I, I, I don't know, we put people's lives in danger because of that, right? Yeah, that's uh, you, you did tell that story. It's an interesting one, and my yeah, the mental image of uh, of this plane flying overhead with uh, with the back of it on fire is uh, it's it's pretty amazing. Dave McCullough, that's the name I've been looking for. Shout out to Dave McCullough who saved me. He was the one that had the blending company that remade everything and did it right. And I'll find the name of the company when we're not on the air, but we are on the air, so we're going to just get into your story. And before we get into the background of how you got to where you got. You know, a lot of people are sitting in accounting classes and, you know, they don't know what they want to do or they're in finance classes and, you know, they don't know what they want to do. And you, uh, you know, you went through and we're going to get into KPMG and moving to Amsterdam, but you ended up with the accounting background and the M&A background. You went through these different companies and, you know, from an accounting role and an M&A role, you ended up in what's the role now? So now I'm the, the CEO of CFS Technologies, and uh, I also am the board chair of uh, the Bay Cities Group. It's actually a, a sheet metal roofing business throughout California. Never a CFO, though. Never a CFO, no. So you, as people are listening to this, they want to go into accounting. They don't really know what it means. Um, and, you, and you take accounting classes, you kind of figure out what it means. But a lot of people, people, you know, people that can talk and do accounting, people that can negotiate and do accounting, people that can build relationships and do accounting, end up in this. CEO role. Uh, and you ended up in the CEO role through that finance angle. And a lot of people get there through my angle, the sales sales angle. Maybe they get there through the HR angle. Uh, maybe they get there through the accounting angle. What was it that made you want to jump into that CEO role instead of just the M&A role? Yeah, well, let me, let me talk about accounting for a quick second. You, you brought up an interesting point that people may not kind of understand this angle sometimes. So as an accountant, really as an auditor, you know, as an auditor with KPMG, and what's amazing is you get and basically an unfettered backstage pass to every company you work on. So if, if you're a curious person, like I, I am and definitely was, you know, kind of the early stages of my career, you can see and learn everything about a business from the ground up, you know, with that, that backstage pass as the, uh, as the auditor and as the accountant. And I mean, from a fundamentally, it's the best way to learn how to learn about a business. I mean, you, you, you go in and you see dozens of businesses every year, you see them in incredible depth and you, you get to learn more in those first couple of years. If you're willing to you know, put in as much time as you possibly can sit in every single meeting, even the ones that you're not invited to just ask to go join and take notes. Um, you can learn so much as a, as a young accountant, right? You know, whether it's audit, audit or advisory, whatever it may be, it's a, you know, really an unbelievable way to, uh, to lay a great foundation as a, as a young person. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know that I was the best accountant. I get bored doing the same thing over and over and over and over again from a historical audit standpoint. But I loved going in and learning about businesses, loved learning how people ran businesses, see it really from the ground up, you know, obviously through the through the lens of accounting and finance. 
but really you get to see everything from, from operations and sales and figure out how the best run companies in the world are actually run. And from that standpoint, it's a, it's a really an incredible um, entree to people's careers. If you're thinking about that from a, from a college standpoint. And so if you're sitting there and you're uh, finishing up college or maybe you finished up a couple of years ago and you don't really know what you want to do, welcome to the club. Chip didn't know. I didn't know. If you think you do know, you're probably wrong. So one way to get exposure is to tell your friends about this podcast. Another way to get exposure is to you could be a consultant that works or an auditor and you get this backstage pass and you can figure out what your skill set is, what you want to do, what your passions are what's your unique ability, and you realize, okay, I'm good at accounting. I like accounting. Some of it's a little too uh, repetitive for me. What else can I do? And you're exposed to these different uh, executive roles, and you're exposed to this strange world of manufacturing, which we're going to get into after we go back in time. So before you worked at KPMG, before you were uh, CEO of CFS Technology, before you're head of strategy and M&A, and running different companies in Amsterdam, you went to high school and college. So you were in high school in Ohio, right? That's right, in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. It's a east side of Cleveland, little tiny town. I, I don't know the population, but their high school was about 125 kids in grade. So my God, a small public high school. Okay, shout out to the Cleveland Clinic. Shout out to John DeJulius out there. I hope you're listening, John DeJulius, who was also on this uh, podcast from Cleveland, Ohio. And so what was life like when you're in high school? Were you in sports? Were you a straight A student? Did you know you always wanted to be a CEO one day? What was it like? Yeah, so it was a lot of sports. I was a, played ice hockey and football. Um, and that really, you know, when you're in small town Ohio, particularly if you play football, it's kind of the kind of the religion. So, I mean, it was, uh, I mean, kind of felt like big fish in a small pond, you know, small school. You know, we were at Division 5 or something like that. So, it didn't have the, uh, you know, the, the, the big kind of takeover the world, you know, athletic teams. But that's just what we did. It was a... Uh, I, not necessarily straight A student. I was always kind of in that three, five to three, eight range, something like that. You know, one school always came easy to me. Um, I actually skipped a grade, uh, skipped fourth grade and, um, I'm an April birthday. So I've always been, you know, the kind of the, the, the youngest in the class and, you know, never really struggled with school, if that makes sense. Um, so kind of did the, did the bare amount to, to kind of keep a, a good enough grade to get into college and then just as much sports I could cram in. You were playing ice hockey in college too. I uh, frat league. Frat league. Okay, so uh, you're in. You're in high school. You're playing sports. Three point five to three point eight out of a four point back then. So you're doing pretty well. We didn't have we didn't have the four fives and the five O's and the six O's back then. So you're a pretty good student, and you go off to college. You're you're now you're doing sports for kind of a pastime. And when you got to college. You know, school probably didn't come as easy anymore. How did you figure out your major? How did you figure out what your next step was? Yeah, so ma- major was an easy one. Um, you know, I knew I wanted to go into finance, um, and I was pretty certain I wanted to go into accounting. I had some some family friends, uh, and also my my dad as well too, who would, you know was in business and was a, was an accounting guy. So I always knew I wanted to lean that direction. You know, at Miami, you really didn't have to make that decision until junior year. So you know, freshman year was just your, your general elective. Sophomore year, you start to focus in a little bit. It was just general business classes. And then you know, when you talk about like not really knowing exactly you know where you want to go and why, I went to Luxembourg to Miami's uh, international program the first semester of junior year uh, with you know, like fifteen buddies and. I mean, had an incredible semester. We did, you know, the bare minimum amount of work, but traveled and kind of got a, a European liberal arts vacation slash uh, semester out of it. Um, came back and it was job fair time and got five different job offers in a few weeks of coming back home at the beginning of a uh, second semester and hadn't even taken a, a serious accounting class or really anything detailed in like audit or tax or anything. So got a job was lined up. Um, even before I'd taken my first like, true accounting and audit class, which is sort of strange. You know, then, then went to classes that kind of validated what, what, I, what I thought I wanted to do, which was nice, but uh, maybe an atypical sort of college uh, college pathway. Yeah, so the economy must have been just pumping that. Ripping, baby. It was supposed to post Sarbanes-Oxley, and uh, yeah, I couldn't hire enough accountants fast enough at the time. Okay, so that, that's going to end soon, but if you're listening to this in 2022, you've got some time. If it's 2023, the time may have run out. So, um, and we, we hear this on the show a lot and you know, people think about what resources do I have? I grew up in New Mexico. I didn't have a lot of resources, but you know, you look at your friends, you look at your classes. You grew up in Ohio and 
I don't know what your resources were, but you had a dad that you could listen to and hear what he did. And maybe you're, you're listening right now and your dad or your mom, don't, they don't do what you want to do, but you can listen about what their friends do, or you can figure out what you don't want to do. And then in addition to your, your, your parents and your family, you talk to your family friends about what they did and they start to give you some guidance. Then you go to class and you either like the classes or you don't. So you're kind of narrowing your path down. Then you go to semester at sea, or not semester at sea, uh, semester abroad in Luxembourg. Strange place to go. Don't know too many people that go to Luxembourg, and I, I've actually been there. And you catch that travel bug, which comes into your story later. So you come back from traveling with 15 friends. That's great. Um, well, the whole program was actually 100. It was like 15. All from your school? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 15 folks just from our fraternity went. And then, uh, uh, I mean, it rounds out the rest of it. So it was, uh, it was a blast. Do they still do this at Miami of, of Ohio? Ooh, yeah. yeah they do. They, they, so they own actually like a castle in, um, oh gosh, I think it's called Differdon, just the city. And so, I mean, Luxembourg's pretty small. It's like a 45 minute train ride from, uh, from Luxembourg city. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's kids there, uh, every semester and then all summer. Okay. There is an advertisement going on right now for university of Miami, Ohio. I also love Northeastern, you know, Northeastern, they have the co-op program. Uh, Miami of Ohio has this study abroad. If you get out of your comfort zone and you're trying different things, you know, Chip here figuring out his accounting career, and we're going to get into his network and how they play into his career later. But you start getting this uh, travel bug. And I guess one of these companies that offered you a job was KPMG, one of the big four accounting firms. Yep. Yep. That's right. Yeah. It was, so it was targeting Chicago uh, as most people were coming out of Miami. It was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of Midwestern folks. Um, so yeah, I ended up going up to Chicago for, was there 2004 to 2008? Um, got married in July of 2008, and then we moved in November to um, to Amsterdam. Actually, okay. So 2004 to 2008, you were working at KPMG in Chicago. That's correct. Yep. And so my brother worked at Microsoft, and one of the things at Microsoft they wanted you to travel if you wanted to rise up the ranks, and you're pretty much not going to go very far if you're not willing to go to another country and try it out. And if you're listening right now, it's not a bad deal. You get to go check out another country. They'll put you in corporate housing. They give you allowances to fly back. You get to experience a whole nother world. Was that part of the KPMG kind of path to leadership? Uh, with KPMG, kind of. I mean, KPMG is a little bit more it, compared to other um, other routes in, 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 in business. I would say it's a little bit more tenure based sometimes. Uh, I, a lot of my kind of peers who are over there at the same time from other businesses, we had folks there from... Uh, Striker Medical being one of them and Starbucks had some people over there. And for those guys who were in more of a, let's say, traditional corporate setting, absolutely. I mean, you know, willing to kind of uproot yourself and your family and then go live in Europe was, uh, it would put you half a decade or more in front of uh, in front of somebody else from a career standpoint. No doubt about that. That was in the corporate world. KPMG, not so much. And is that because tax law in Europe is different than tax law in the US and they want you to figure out which area you're going to focus in? I, I think it's more about the partnership structure. <laughs> So, I mean, there is always that, you know, you get to about 15 years at KPMG and you make partner plus or minus a year or two, you know, maybe, maybe two years, something like that, if you're a stud. Um, so does it really alter that pathway to get to something that's largely time-based? Eh, not necessarily. You know, great exposure, being able to say, hey, you know, I you know, can literally and figuratively speak that language. I understand how international business works firsthand and not just from, you know, from Zoom calls. Yeah. But uh, for, for my KPMG pathway, it didn't really make a big difference. Okay. So uh, again, if you're listening right now, maybe you're into accounting, maybe you're into finance, maybe you're into business, maybe you're into nursing, who knows? Uh, but there's an opportunity to go abroad, expand your horizon. So you're in Chicago for four years. You go to Amsterdam, I guess, just working at KPMG for one more year, right? Yeah, it was about a year and a half at KPMG. And then uh, I actually got recruited from my old boss who had left KPMG to go to a company called IDEX, which is a, a mid-cap diversified industrial company. And what that means is we do about $2.5 billion in sales. We had about 60 facilities all around the world, publicly traded, headquarters in Chicago. And um, yeah, he recruited me to come uh, come do finance and mergers and acquisitions for them based out of, uh, out of Amsterdam still. Okay, so you're you're in the auditing role. You may be getting sick of the auditing role. You've been exposed with this backstage pass to all these opportunities. You're doing simple things spectacularly. People know, and you get recruited by your old boss. And I want to stop there because people listening right now, you know, they they know that you should maintain relationships. They know that uh, well, that old fraternity saying, "It doesn't matter what you know; it matters who you know." And I've adjusted that. It doesn't matter what you know or who you know. 
It matters what you do with what you know and who you know. So this old boss, how did you stay in contact with them? How did he feel confident reaching out with you? How did it go down that someone calls you from your past and invites you to come work in this new company instead of somebody else? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I mean, in, uh, relationship building is uh, is something you either do very actively or, I mean, it's hard to kind of go halfway on that, right? Like, at least in my standpoint, I, I keep in touch with a small group of people and keep in very, very close contact with them for the most part, you know, as opposed to having, you know, 10,000 people that I casually reach back out to. You know, it's some of it strategic, sure. Some of it is just, you know, just great fit and great personality. You know, that old boss is someone who I'd, you know, I'd worked very, very closely with for years um, in those early days at KPMG. You know, we're in the same room for, you know, eight to 10 hours some days. And, you know, that would go out at night after that. And, um, yeah, I think when, when you kind of build that level of, of trust and relationship and rapport with people, um, you, you tend to, to find yourself sort of intersecting over the course of the next, you know, five, 10, 20 years. You know, he's someone I still talk with. At least once a year, you know, still in you know, similar industries and he's in the Chicago area still and keep in touch, whether it's just kind of general mentorship or, you know, what's going on and are you looking for anything? And, you know, how can I help you? How can you help me? How, how's the family doing? Um, you know, I don't know. I think just you know, being, a, being a good person, if you gravitate towards someone and you've got that great relationship, you know, don't, you know, don't, don't let it go by the wayside. I think, you know, you finally a- you answered a question that I haven't been able to articulate the how and really make it understandable. It's sincerely maintaining relationships. It's not strategic. And you said, you know, you have a couple strategic relationships. I call bullshit on that because I know you pretty well. Um, I think you have sincere relationships. I have sincere relationships. And then you add effort. So anybody can have sincere relationships. Everybody listening right now has, has them. But you add effort. Do you reach out and call? Do you make time to visit them when you're in town? And it's the people you like. You're not doing it with the people you don't like. They know you don't like them. You're not doing it to use someone for the future. They know that you're mooching off of them. You're meeting people that you like, and anybody can do that. It's adding the effort step, adding the reach out, adding the birth date to your calendar, adding the wedding anniversary to your calendar, calling them in their time of need. You know, somebody passed away in their family, remembering what that day was and calling because you listening right now are sincerely a good person and you know who the people are you sincerely want to be with. If you add a little effort to that relationship, then you guys lift each other. And I'm sure this person, you've lifted him or her, he or she's lifted you. They brought you into a business that you ended up helping them out with. Maybe you bring them into a deal. And it's not because you're trying to help each other out. It's not because you're mooching. It's because you actually sincerely care and you're going to throw a little effort behind something you care about, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, also don't be afraid to reach back out to people that, you know, you've known. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I think people kind of get stuck in the, you know, I haven't talked to this person for a year, two years, three years. I don't know if I should call them up. Call them up. You know, if if you've got a good or had a good relationship with somebody at one point, yeah, even if it's just some something emotional or strong you've had at some point, those bonds are still, you know, strong enough to reach back out. Don't be afraid to go exercise those, uh, those contacts and networks. And the Lord works in mysterious ways. If you're getting a gut feeling to reach out to somebody while you're listening to this, reach out to them. There's some serendipitous, strange force in the, in the world calling you guys together, you people together. I'm glad we clarified that because I've had in the show, I've had that pop up and you know, you and I know when people call us and they're trying to mooch off us. You and I know when people call up and they just want something. And we also know when people like I just all I think about as I'm saying this is my business partner's son, Derek. And, and Derek lost his brother to suicide. And he came and kind of moved in here right after that happened. And Derek will call me up. I don't know, once a quarter. Hey, I want to swing by and have dinner. And every time I'm thinking, man, I got to call Derek more often. Um, but he's and I told his dad, I said, Jake, your son is so good at maintaining relationships. He doesn't want anything from me. There's nothing he can get from me. His, part, his dad's my partners. We share everything equally. He's just reaching out out of sincerity to maintain a relationship. And I totally appreciate it. I probably talked about it on the show before. People know when it's sincere. And it isn't easy to put effort into something, but it's not hard either. You just got to remember. Are you enjoying the show thus far? 
We go through so many resources and links with this podcast, it's tough to keep up. I get it. That's why Matt and the rest of the team put together the Edge of Excellence Bundle. In it, you'll find different tools that relate to overarching themes and topics of the show. Things like disk assessment tools, time management strategies and tactics, stress and anxiety management tools, exclusive videos and episodes from this podcast that is not released anywhere else, and so much more. The best part? As a valued listener of this show, you can access the Edge of Excellence bundle 100% for free of charge. That's right, for simply being awesome and tuning in. To get access, all you have to do is go to www.collegeworks.com podcast and fill out the short form there for us to get the bundle over to you. Once again, it's www.collegeworks.com podcast. Now, back to the show. So you maintain relationships with this guy and maybe it was a random call and he's like, hey, you should come over here and work at IDEX. And you thought, okay, it's time for me to go. And you jumped over to IDEX and you moved into finance and M&A. What is finance and M&A? And it doesn't matter if you're at a manufacturing pumps or you're manufacturing shoes or you're working in a service company. What is finance and M&A and what skills did you need for that? Yeah. And before I answer that, there's also the to their, the uh, the listenership out there. There's also the question of what the hell is an IDEX? <laughs> because there's... There's also a huge world of, you know, of just manufacturing companies that as you're looking at, you know, all those potential places to go in your career, um, you know, it's, I mean, the IDEX, you know, competes with companies, a bunch of places you'd never hear of the Dover's and Danaher and Honeywell and Illinois Toolworks and all these businesses that are large global collections of really, really great niche manufacturing businesses. So niche manufacturing generally is, let's say, a, a 50 to yeah, $500 million manufacturing company that usually make a very specific widget or component that makes the world go around. You know, we did a lot of pumps, for example, it could be anything from, you know, pumps used to, to make, you know, make and process food and chocolate or shampoo and you know, like hair conditioner all the way to like water and wastewater pumps thing you'd find in like a municipal water treatment facility. And and honestly, a million other things in between. And, you know, a lot of people kind of come out of school and they're like, I'm going to work at Apple and Google and Tesla, and I'm going to go to Silicon Valley or go to Wall Street or whatever it may be. And, you know, there's a lot of really fantastic, highly progressive manufacturing businesses out there. So, you know, don't, don't, don't hesitate to go look up some of those, uh, you know, really great industrials. You have to do a little bit of homework to get underneath of it because you'll end up going working for the operating company. You know, like you'll never buy anything that, you know, was sold by IDEX or sold by Dover, but you'll buy, you know, plenty of things that are, uh, you know, that are, are are made by them through another, you know, another outlet, you know, that you'd never recognize the name. I mean, we did things like, you know, we make the jaws of life, right? So, if, you know, you flip your car over and you got to get cut out, you know, we make that big, crazy contraption that cuts the door off and then saves it first, right? Like really cool stuff that you kind of never think about, but those businesses are, are really fantastic. They're good, you know, high growing, high margin businesses. And you can, you know, really have a lot of great career options in manufacturing in general. You're looking for what you're going to be doing in a company. You're looking for a company with the values and the culture. But if you limit yourself to Apple, Tesla, and SpaceX, you're missing the other 400 booths at the career fair. And there might be the most wonderful person that you'll be tied to for the rest of your life working in a company that you've never heard of. And I bet, and I should look this up, I bet there's 10 times as many companies that are behind the scenes as there are brands we know of. Maybe 100 times. Who makes the threads for the Cavelli suit? Who makes the buttons for the ASIC shoes or whatever it is? So you, you're keeping your eyes open and this person comes to you and you kind of already know that you know there's this cool stuff going on behind the scenes. And so you come in to a company that maybe people haven't heard of before, but doing the same thing that's happening in every company, maybe there's better opportunities for you because you're in Amsterdam, they're in Amsterdam, you, you speak a couple languages, they need those languages. And what were you doing as in the finance and M&A role in that cool business? 
Yeah, absolutely. So M&A again for the, you know, for the viewership out there is mergers and acquisitions. So and from a finance side, I was kind of doing double duty. So I was, uh, was in the finance department of a company called Fast and Fluid Management. They make the pink shakers and mixers that you'd find at Home Depot. So when you go to Home Depot and you put, you know, you say, I need this baby blue eyes colored paint, you, they, you put it in the machine, it drops little droplets in, puts a color in and then puts it in a separate machine, shakes it around and you got your paint. So we make those for Europe. So I was, uh, was in the finance department there uh, out of Amsterdam where they manufactured those systems. And at the same time, uh, we had just acquired a collection of, I think it was 13 sites around the world for a, a business that IDEX just bought. And so I, I had two or th- uh, three of the sites, one in uh, one in the Netherlands and two in the UK that I uh, was going and traveling around basically every week and working with the, the finance group and the general managers of those sites and kind of teaching them the IDEX way. So getting them uh, integrated to the business uh, kind of first and foremost from a finance side and then working with them on, you know, operations plans, just overall kind of uh, systems integration to, uh, to IDEX. And then also their kind of go forward plans and strategy, how they're going to grow those businesses as part of, a, as part of the IDEX group. So simple things spectacularly was the IDEX way. And um, you talk about uh, those, those paint color uh, mixers. First of all, we don't talk about Home Depot. We talk about Sherwin-Williams. Sherwin-Williams, the greatest chemical company in the world. Sherwin-Williams that uses those same paint injectors to make the color perfect every time. Back when I, I got into the paint business back in the day, they used to use these little hand things and they'd eyeball it. And you'd have to mix all the colors together because it was never exactly right. So you guys figured out how to do a simple thing spectacularly, get the exact right size single drop sometimes into the big five-gallon bucket so it's made perfectly. And then in M&A, there's the finance side. How are we going to pay for it? What are the numbers? What's the best financing? Where are we going to get the deal structure? What's this going to do to our... Uh, to our balance sheet. What's this going to do to our debt line? I just, we just bought a company. So how much are we going to have to go into our line of credit to fund it? That's the finance side. The M&A side, you could be helping select the right company, looking at the deals, analyzing the deals, or in your case, you're also integrating the business. So after it's acquired, you got to integrate it in the systems and methods of the parent company and probably the cultural integration of the parent company. So if you're in finance and you're a people person or you're in accounting and you're a people person, if you work well with others, but you also love numbers, you work well with others or you also love systems, you might be good for the M&A integration side of a business. And now we've just talking to Chip here, we've got like 75 different jobs you can look at if you're in accounting, but it's gonna take a little effort. So you go into IDEX, and you start, um, I guess, getting a passion for still you're traveling. So you've got this company that nobody ever heard of. That you're traveling all around to these different sites. You're meeting all sorts of cool people. You're bringing them into the culture. And you, I guess, do really well in there. And then how do you jump from that, from that security of working in this big business, probably getting paid a lot? How do you jump from that to starting your own chemical dispensing business? Yeah, good question. And you mentioned sort of travel and the, the, the bouncing around too. I mean, there's, um, yeah, in a big company like that, you know, I, I kind of took the route of, you know, I was willing to move anywhere and move as fast as they wanted me to go to go up the ladder, quite honestly. Um, so, you know, I went from Amsterdam back to Chicago, uh, was there 18 months or so, then went to Indianapolis, was there about 18 months. And then, uh, then the last pit stop, with IDEX was out to California. And those four moves were in the span of, you know, a little under six years, something like that. My, my older daughter who was born in, uh, was born in Amsterdam had lived in Chicago, Indianapolis and California, plus two or three corporate houses in between by the time she was like two and a half, three years old. It was, a uh, yeah, it was, it, it was, it's an, it's a, it's a, I think it's a great career path. You're willing to do that, particularly sort of early in your career and maybe before family and before the house and white picket fence. Um, those great opportunities to, to go around the globe with those big companies it takes a toll on you, but it, uh, it's a great way to it's a great way to see a lot and move up the ladder. Um, so yeah, my last pit stop with IDEX was the the president and general manager of a, of a business out here in California. It was in the chemical dispensing um, and equipment space, and uh, yeah, I was there for a couple of years and uh, absolutely loved the business. And um, yeah, it, it was a 
this space that, you know, I looked at it and said, Hey, you know, I, I love what they do in terms of, you know, macroeconomics There's more people on the planet every day. Everyone needs access to clean food and clean surfaces. You know, this is all pre COVID kind of before anyone honestly really cared about clean. And uh, the, the twist that I sort of liked or saw in the future was the ability to wrap data around that. And so started a company that had that same idea around, you know, kind of clean, but then integrating sensors and kind of flow monitoring equipment to be able to prove clean using data in, uh, in several applications. So really it was, uh, you know, starting the new business was not necessarily to compete exactly with that, you know, with, with the old business, but to be able to say, hey, I think there's a, a future need for, you know, literally proving clean. I mean, you know, we did... And we did a lot of laundry, right? And yeah, you know, it's a there's sort of a funny adage um, that you know, so you ever hear like if you go to a hotel and it's like, oh, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're itchy, it's oh, it's because the hotel's dirty and it's got bed bugs. Yeah, it's not typically the you know this dirty bed bug you know process at your hotel. It's nine times out of ten, it's because the chemicals they use to wash your sheets are actually off. So when you do like industrial laundry, you really mess with the the you. In your, in your chemical bath, it goes extremely basic to make it extremely clean to pull the dirt off. And then you, you do an acid injection and that acid brings your pH back to seven, seven and a half, where you need to be for it to be neutral, basically pH neutral. And that's what your skin likes. Well, it, a lot of times, not a lot, on occasion in, in a hotel laundry, if it's missing, let's say the acid, you could have sheets that are extremely basic. You can all the wash at like a 12, right? If you sleep in something like sheets that have, you know, that much, um, like the pH is off that much, you're going to wake up itchy in the middle of the night. <laughs> and similarly, if, the, if it's got, you know, the, if the acid's there, but your base is actually off or it's not a chemical, then your sheets are also going to be messed up there as well, too. Long and short of it, we said it was like, if you're a hotel operator or you're a guest in a hotel, you don't care about any of that crap that's happening down in the laundromat. You just want to know that your sheets got clean. And so what we said is, you know, how do you take new technology into this to actually make sure that chemicals are going into, you know, a washing machine in this case at the right amounts at the right time. So the stuff coming out the other end of it is is clean and is, is done as advertised. So you travel around with your family, you're crushing it with your simple thing spectacularly and you rise up the ranks in this company you know jump out of kpmg where you get to become partner in 10 more years you go to idex you're moving around you're rising up you're crushing it you're adding effort just like the effort you put into your relationships you put that into your job and then you find this kind of special niche that you love and you know you're a data nerd and that's your special sauce and you decide i'm going to go off and start a company that I'm going to build on just this special sauce. Maybe the people at IDEX weren't as interested as you were, but that's usually how it happens. There's something you're so passionate about. You want to bet the farm on it. You want to go off and make it happen. So you roll out of IDEX and you roll into um, founding Lavo Solutions. And I knew you at that time, didn't I? Yeah. I knew you at IDEX and then you left IDEX. And I believe you took a huge pay, pay cut. I believe you took big risk. I believe you're back to the ramen days. I mean, maybe I'm speaking a little too far. You know, you went out there and took a big risk when you did this, right? Yeah. I mean, being a founder is not, it's, it's no joke. <laughs> you, you know, this, uh, you know, this, um, you know, obviously firsthand. And yeah, I think for a lot of people, I, I think the the risk is largely worth the reward, but when people you know, give those stats of like, Oh yeah, it's going to take, you know, twice as much work and twice as much money. And they're lying. It's four times as much work and four times as much money. That's exactly right. It's, you know, it's maybe 10, whatever the number is like multiply it by five. It, it's a significant amount of work. And yeah, particularly coming out of the, the safety and comfort of, you know, a large public company or a large accounting firm, it's a, it's a shock to the system. There's no doubt about that. You know, I think it's, it's fun. It's enjoyable. I mean, there's that sort of, you know, the, the adage of like, you know, the, the highs are much higher and the lows are really, really low. And, you know, there's not a lot of people that really truly understand what you do, but um, yeah, if you truly believe in it, it's uh, I think it's worth it. It can be rewarding, but yeah, you, you got to, if you don't have a high threshold for pain, I don't know if, you know, going corporate, you know, corporate world off to starting a company from scratch is going to be your jam. It's a, a lot of work. Yeah. And that's a really good clarification. You got to For some people, it's not right. And don't forget the significant others. I mean, they're along for the right too. And I was talking to somebody and they were talking about how, you know, they're, oh, you know, the person I was talking to someone's, uh, they, they're having a problem in their marriage and the spouse is saying, you know, he's gone and he goes on these trips and we lost all our money and I can't afford to do this and we can't afford to do that. And I'm like, hey, that's what you signed up for. 
you you married an established entrepreneur and the, the company went down that he was running and then he started a new company. And so you and your significant other need to be ready for that. No matter how confident you are, how great you think you are, how perfect everything's going to be, how easy it is to slide into this company because you know everybody there already, things go down and it's going to be tough on you, tough on your spouse. So maybe it's not right for you and you continue in the corporate environment, which my brother did and he's crushed it there and a lot of people do. Maybe it is, but you had a belief in yourself. You had a history uh, doing things spectacular. You had this weird passion for this uh, exactness. And you decided, you know what, I'm going to jump. And I'm sure you had family meetings about it. And you jumped. And then you start going, going, going. And then eventually you brought in other people's money, right? Um, yeah, well, for sure. I mean, I probably put the vast majority of it in. Um, but then, yeah, I had some, uh, some, some family money put in, some, uh, some third-party debt, SBA debt, things like that. I mean, it's, um, yeah, particularly starting a manufacturing company from scratch, it requires capital, a ton, a ton of time. Yeah, and it's it's B two B. I mean, it's it's you know it's long sales cycle. I mean, this isn't like I've got a product and someone buys it tomorrow off the internet. I mean, our our sales cycle is such that you have a product, you need to sell it to somebody, you need to go convince the engineer at that company that it's the right thing to fit with their application. Then they got to test it for a few months. Then if they like it, they'll have five other people test. And then if that works. Now you're six months down the road. You got to get in front of the marketing department, make sure it all works and fits in their program. I mean, you're a, you know, easily an 18 to 24 month sales cycle with, uh, with the vast majority of customers. So it's a, yeah, no, no immediate gratification. You got to be ready for, you know, for it to take some time to get spooled up. Four times as much time. Okay. So we had to add something in there. So you go through this life of trying these different things out, keeping your relationships going, keeping your eyes open, using your resources. You got the history of spectacular results and simple and, and other things. You got the passion, you got the belief in yourself, you got the family on board, and then you got the timing. So a lot of times people listening here, they're, they're going to, if I don't do it, I hear by 30. If I don't get this done by 30, I'm a total failure. If I haven't done this by 30, if I don't make a gazillion dollars a year by 30, if I don't own my own company by 30, and you know they end up living the van life because it didn't happen by 30, you got to wait. You got to take the opportunities as they come to you. And you waited for the perfect timing. And I thought you actually went and, and, and rose equity money. You didn't. You used your personal money. You don't have personal money unless you wait until you have personal money. You don't have personal money unless you're saving money as you're making it and stashing it aside. You don't get family money because it doesn't matter what you know. It matters who you know. If your parents are the Rockefellers, they're not going to give you the money if they don't believe in you. You're not going to get an SBA loan if you don't have a history and people are, are, feel like they're going to get their money back. So all this came together in the perfect storm and off you go and you start this company that's doing wonderfully still here in Southern California, right? Uh, yeah. And I'd say going wonderfully. Yes. And then COVID hit and then, you know, all, all, all bets were off as well then too. Right. So even if you think you've got the timing, right, you know, something can still come out of a, out of left field and, and derail things. And um, that's and that's where you test your Zen abilities to get over it, right? Hundred percent. Yeah, that's the that's the resilience and grit books that everyone's written like eight thousand things about. But I'd say coming back to two, two different points you mentioned, you know about you know I, I want to get it all done by thirty, whatever it may be. And I, I think there's that you know the the comment about fake it till you make it. I think is extremely dangerous. Um, and it kind of comes back to what I was saying before about you know it, early in your career, I. I kind of believe that like, if you're going to be really successful, you have to know a certain amount of stuff all said and done or have exposure to a certain amount of things. And I think there's extreme power in front loading that in your career. So, you know, those early twenties, you know, when you got nothing else to do, but hang out in your apartment and you know, hang out with your friends, obviously do all that, but like go to work, you know, go put in 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And I mentioned like in that accounting world, you know, go to extra meetings, you know, go work, go ask, go ask for extra assignments, go learn as much as you can. It's kind of like if you need 10,000 hours of, of knowledge to be really successful or good at something, you got time, you know, your first couple of jobs to go do that. Go, go load up your brain early. It's only going to benefit you down the road. And then it'll give you a better opportunity at 30, 31, 32 to be able to go and actually do that educated and, you know, with a great foundation and, and not just be out there guessing. That's a really good point. So it's it, again, use of your resources. You use your relationships. Well, you put the effort in to connect with them. You're in Amsterdam, maybe because you're in a strange place where you don't know everybody. You got nothing to do on Friday night. Why not try something new out? But 
it's it's the rule of 72. Just like investing in your retirement, you put money away early, you can retire early. You put experience away early, you can excel early. And by the way, I keep thinking of how am I going to rope Sean Baldwin's name into this podcast? Because, you know, I always try to do that. And I'm going to give up on trying to rope Sean Baldwin into this. I'm just going to say Sean Baldwin. And we've done it. I want to get back to your uh, your early success. When you're at Miami of Ohio, did you kind of see yourself one day being an entrepreneur? I know you probably didn't see yourself in the in the businesses you've been in. Did you see yourself as an entrepreneur? Did you see, yeah, I expect one day to uh, be CEO or is it a surprise? Yeah, I actually started a small company in Miami with uh, with one of my best friends. Coincidentally, his name's Chip, which is funny enough. So it's Chip, Chip and Chip. Um, and we started a essentially a little online tool that was a um, it was a, like essentially a what's going on in Oxford. You know, it was like essentially like news clips and then like what you know bar and restaurant specials were happening. Uh, you know, that night or that week things. Yeah, it was kind of a you know also then it was, it was an interesting idea. I wish we would have put more time and effort into it. Probably be uh, you know be feeling real smart about a, a, an internet company at the moment. But um, you know, we we did that and it was kind of a. It was a way to just have beer money, honestly. You know, it took a, it took a little bit of time. We got some uh, we got some folks in town to, to sponsor it. Basically, all the bars and restaurants we were going to anyway. And uh, yeah, paid for beer money senior year. So yeah, always had a little bit of the entrepreneurial bug. Um, interesting enough that that chip I was talking about started a wine business and he sold it to Berkshire Hathaway a few years ago. So maybe planted a seed in both of us, which is uh, just pretty cool. But uh, yeah, I always had a, a little bit of that entrepreneurial bug. And, and I can't say I you know, kind of stood there and said, hey, you know, I want to be the CEO of something one day. But I always like being in charge. You know, I was uh, talking about playing sports. Like I was captain of a hockey team in high school. And I was a sophomore. I was like a 13-year-old sophomore. Um, you know, I always kind of had leadership roles. And so I, I, anything I've ever gone into, I didn't assume that I would just kind of sit, sit in the back seat. So whether it was CEO or just you know, somebody up on top, I knew I'd be up there somewhere. And maybe it happens. Maybe it doesn't. Uh, but you can see, I, I like that. It, you see it festering. You got this little thing. and Maybe you ignore it and you go a different way, uh, but maybe you don't. And always like to be in charge. I, I call myself and others call me the same, the same, a control freak. If you're a bit of a control freak and you can control it so you're not an asshole, which I'm still working on, and you're, you always want to be in charge, but you're wise and mature enough to let other people be in charge and take other people's opinions. You might be a good entrepreneur, but you got to throw that other stuff that we were talking about earlier on the show. Now, I want to go back again. You, you made some sacrifices in your life and move into um, Amsterdam is probably a big one. What sacrifice do you think of constantly when you just just pops in your head? I am so glad I did it. I didn't want to do it at the time. I didn't know if it was a good idea. What would you go back and say, hey, chip, chip and chip, make that sacrifice again. It was the best idea you ever had. Yeah, so I at IDEX when I was running um, kind of running strategy for a group of businesses, we had gone and done a, a change about the operating model with how those companies operate, and so I was put in charge of helping uh, all of our existing businesses essentially, you know, undertake this new operating model change. And it was uh, it's public information out there. We we, we implemented the eighty twenty operating model, which. Yeah, you know, sounds simple. Kind of the whole, you know, eighty percent of, of customers, you know, make or eighty percent of your revenue comes from twenty percent of customers, similar with products. There's actually a much deeper model you can integrate around that. So I, I went and, and worked with a collection of those eighteen businesses all around the world in an eighteen month period, and they were literally all over the world. So I traveled 80, 90 percent of the time, something like that, for uh, you know almost a year and a half. Um, get to the point where you know by <laughs> sort of sort of joking, but. My daughter, who was, I don't know, one and a half at the time, maybe something like that. Anytime she, she'd see a car pull up and down her driveway, she would just stand there and wave and say, bye. Oh, no. Bye. bye. Oh, no. Oh, no. A car coming to pick me up and, you know, and for me to be gone for another week or so. Oh, no. But it was, it was well worth it in terms of, uh, in terms of laying the groundwork. But, uh, and so I'd look at it and say, hey, if you're going to do that, you know, do that all over again for sure. But, man, it was a big commitment. And I had a similar sacrifice when I did an all around the world thing. And I left my kids at home and I knew it was going to be great. My wife was pissed for about 15 years. Yeah. Were you in trouble for a few years after that with uh, other people in your family? You know, it's funny. I wasn't. And I say, I, I say, you mentioned before about, you know, Amsterdam must've been a sacrifice. Yeah. The, I think people shouldn't be afraid to have your career kind of uh, somewhat like kind of controlling the throttle on your career. Right. I think there's certain points where you're all the way down, you're redlining and like you're going a million miles an hour. There's other points you kind of just naturally take your hand, you know, take your hand off the throttle just a little tiny bit for all the right reasons. So 
But since we got married in, in July of 2008, we moved to Amsterdam in November of 2008. And honestly, like it was, it was kind of like taking the hand off the throttle a little bit because the, the commitments that we are, you know, we're doing 80 to hundred hours a week at KPMG a lot of weeks. Then you go to a European working lifestyle and it's not, I mean, it's a 37 and a half hour work week. And this is, you know, now we're, you know, 2008, 2009, the economy is taking a dump and, you know, we still had long working hours, but you know, the, the rules in the Netherlands at the time were such that if you worked any overtime, which we did routinely, you either had to get paid out or you had to take it as vacation. And KPMG at the time said like, hey, you know, with everything going on in the economy, we're not going to pay you out for these hours, which we always have. You have to take it as vacation. And so we that 18 month period was a lot of vacation. Oh, <laughs> and it, sounds good. it was great because we really spent a lot of time working on our marriage. You know, we traveled a lot. It was kind of like a two year honeymoon and laid the foundation for being able to tackle the really hard stuff down the road. I mean, if, if we hadn't done that, if we hadn't traveled that much, spent that much time together, you know, and really, you know, focusing on the, the foundation of our marriage. I don't think we would have made it through the entrepreneurial years, quite honestly. Wow. There we go. Serendipity again. So if you're listening, you can tell what Chip's personality is like. He's under, uh, looking under rocks and always finding something awesome and always looking for the best in things. He's thinking far in advance. Maybe he doesn't even know he's thinking far in advance. But everything's an opportunity. And Chip, how do people find you? Um, do they go to what's your company website? Uh, it's <laughs> that's a good question. I have no idea. Um, I think it's cfstech.com. The best place to find me is, is LinkedIn. <laughs> um, I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. Um, yeah, look for uh, look look for Chip McCas on LinkedIn and, and find me on there. M C A S L A N. And uh, if you if you want to just check out different uh, a different industry, if you're in finance, you're in M and A. Um, you're looking for a cool job with a cool company, check out Chip, C-H-I-P-M-C-A-S-L-A-N on LinkedIn. Chip, thank you so much. Um, I've got nine pages of notes uh, from this discussion. I really appreciate your insight. I really appreciate the serendipitous opportunities you shared. I really appreciate you broadening everyone's horizon to like 75 different job opportunities today. Happy 4th of July. Enjoy that white picket fence down in the Gale Shores, which I don't think they have any white picket fences down there. I appreciate you making time on the Friday before 4th of July, no less. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate you, you too. Enjoy the holiday. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun uh, doing a little trip down memory lane and hopefully uh, sharing some insight with everybody. Oh, I'm sure everybody benefited. Thanks a lot for being on the Edge of Excellence. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on the Edge of Excellence podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to this. If this episode made you think of someone, go ahead, take a screenshot and share this exact episode with them. This show exists to showcase what is possible when young leaders are willing to step out of their comfort zone and choose to excel in their lives. To learn more about our internship for young and ambitious students, www.oneinternship.com podcast to see if it's something that makes sense for you. Once again, it is www.oneinternship.com podcast. Let this be a reminder for you to live on the edge of excellence in your business and life. See you next time.